0: We're taking a wee break from our Genesis series this morning. Nikki's got a special message for us. Um, so, isn't it good to have Nikki preaching? It's been a while. So, um, let me pray for you, and then we'll we'll get into this. Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth of your word. We thank you that when we turn to the scriptures, that we see you revealed. And that's what we're asking for this morning, that we're asking that we'll, we will see you revealed to us. And so we just pray for Nikki as she, um, she talks to us today and speaks to us from what she's seen um, in your words. Would you anoint her words, and through them, would you help us to get a glimpse of you that will transform us and change us and renew us and strengthen us. So we just bless her as she blesses us and as you bless this entire church body this morning with your truth. Amen.
1: Good morning. I think I'm on. Am I? Can you all hear me? Okay. Now, in this country... A quite a big event has recently happened, and it was witnessed by millions of people all over the world. Can you think what it was? A big event that happened recently in this country? The coronation. The coronation, that's right. It was King Charles' coronation. Now, some of you might have watched it on TV, some of you might have just enjoyed having a bank holiday off, and some of you might have just eaten some coronation chicken. But to be honest, I didn't really know what to completely make of it. It, I knew that it was something ancient and it was steeped in history. And I've never seen anything like it before in my lifetime. Interestingly, the thing that stood out to most of the reporters and um, people talking about it on the news afterwards was that moment where King Charles was anointed with oil behind the screens. It reminded me of the times in the Bible when the priests were anointing kings with oil. But this was playing out in our generation, right in front of us. It was strange. Well, today, we are going to be talking about a coronation, but many of you might not have thought about this part of Jesus' story that way. This morning, like Kenny said, we're taking a little break from our series in Genesis, and we're going to be thinking about the Ascension, as today is Ascension Sunday. Now, I have grown up in church my whole life, and I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't think I have ever heard about the Ascension on Ascension Sunday. Or if I have, I've forgotten about it. I don't really remember it because it wasn't really a big deal in our tradition of the church. And I'm not really sure that we know what to do with the Ascension. I think it's part of the story that's quite neglected. See, we celebrate Christmas when Jesus comes among us. We know how to do that. We speak a lot about Jesus's death and resurrection as we should but we kind of skip over the ascension. Maybe we're just a bit confused by it. We know somehow that it is important because it gets a mention in the Nicene Creed. It says, "'We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, "'the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, "'God from God, light from light, "'true God from true God, begotten, not made, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So what is the ascension? The ascension is the moment when Christ is taken up to heaven. It's otherworldly. It's strange. It's mysterious. How do you picture it? I have imagined it as Jesus saying goodbye and floating up to heaven on a cloud with some really, like, bewildered disciples looking on. But what actually happened? To be honest, over the years, I have wondered, why did he have to go? Wouldn't it be nice to still have Jesus walking among us? The thing that I knew was that the Holy, uh, Jesus had to go so that the Holy Spirit could come, which is true, but is that all there is to it? What is really happening here? The ascension is about a king. It is about a coronation. It's about Jesus' eternal reign as Lord over all. But to fully understand this, we do need to go back to the beginning. Now, I know that we said we're taking a break from Genesis, but I was only joking. Let's have a look. Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And we've talked about this over the last few weeks as we've been studying Genesis. The first task for humans was that they were to rule over creation on behalf of God. We are created in the image of God, and that means that humans are God's royal representatives here on earth. And we are called to reign over all of creation on God's behalf. Psalm 8, verses four to six says this, what are, we, what are mere mortals that you should think of them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority. See, this was humanity's calling, but we know that something went terribly wrong. We learned that humanity failed to do this and right from the very beginning of time sorry adam and eve were given a promise genesis 3:15 says this and i will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he will strike your head and you will strike his heel the people in the bible were always looking for the one who would come the messiah the one through whom God would restore his kingdom and ruling and reigning with God, which had been lost in the garden. Andrew even talked last week that Eve actually looked to Cain, believing maybe that he was the one who would redeem them. But we also saw how tragically that story ended. But throughout the whole biblical narrative, we see these rise of figures of people that seem like they might fulfill um, the Jewish hopes. Of the people and they asked is this the messiah is this the one who was promised to be our redeemer and our king now some of the figures were more promising than others and perhaps the most promising was king david but the reality was there was no one who could really fulfill the promise this messianic hope was kind of like the silhouette that needed to be filled It was like a shadow, but in the future, and none of the promising figures took the shape. No one really fit it. And even David, who many considered the high point of Israel's kings, knew that he was not the Messiah, and he longed for the one who was to come and take his rightful place as king. Look what he says in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. He will shatter heads over the whole earth, but he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. This is David speaking and foretelling about the one who is to come. If you look at verse one, is it still up there? we put verse one up there. We read the Lord in capital letters, which we have learned in our translation means Yahweh. So it makes it a bit easier if you think it says, Yahweh is speaking to his Lord, who is a future king who will rule over the people. Yahweh is talking to my Lord, someone who David sees as greater than him, See, David is looking ahead to a time where God would raise up a future king who was from the Davidic line. There is mystery here too, as the king was to come, but he existed before David and was superior to David. This put what happens when Jesus was born into some perspective. If we look at Luke 1, 29 to 33, it says this. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, the angel told her. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. We have an announcement here or a royal pronouncement. The promised one has come in Jesus. He is the king that David looked forward to, that the Jewish people have been waiting for, someone that was the hope for the restoration of the world, the one whose kingdom would never end. Finally, the time had come. The one hoped for was here. And so we see a king come, but Jesus looked nothing like what the people thought he would. Even at his birth, when he was this tiny baby, he caused a big reaction. We see shepherds and wise men kneel at his feet, acknowledging his kingship. And at his birth, who was the one who was most threatened by this little baby? It was a king, King Herod. He knew that there was something powerful about Jesus. He knew a new king had come. And what did Jesus say about himself? In Luke 17 20, it says this Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the, kingdom of the, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is telling them that the kingdom of God had begun right under their noses, but it looked nothing like what the Pharisees thought that it would. In this statement, he is saying much more than this. He tells them that he is king The king himself was standing among them, but they didn't recognize him. And throughout Jesus' life on earth, this was the question that was asked of him time and time again. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised king? Well, Jesus demonstrates his authority in his teaching, in his miracles, and even shows his authority over nature the same authority that God promised humanity in the beginning. And both the religious rulers and the Roman authorities did not know what to do with him. I've always sort of wondered, what was the reason um, why Jesus, when he heals people, and he, what was the reason that he asked them not to tell anyone about him? Why was this? Well, It was because it wasn't the right time. He doesn't want people to know that he is king yet because it would have caused a huge stir. At that time in history, or indeed at any time in history, declaring your kingship would have been a politically threatening statement and Jesus still had work to do. And then finally, the time comes when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, riding not in a golden carriage like we saw King Charles do at his coronation, but on a donkey, we do see crowds lining the streets, welcoming him and shouting Hosanna and laying down their cloaks because the time has come for the king to be made known. In Luke 19, 38 to 40, it says this, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The talk of the stones crying out is a sign that even creation is awaiting the coming of God's kingdom. Its coming not only means that humans will be restored, but all of creation will be restored as well. Then we see the king is then crowned, but not with a heavy golden crown, with a crown of thorns. And he is lifted up, but not on a throne, on a cross and crucified. Above him, above him they hang a sign which reads, King of the Jews. And when Jesus is crowned with the crowning of thorns, it shows us that Jesus' kingship is not what we expect. It is not one of force and violence. He rules by way of service and sacrifice. He is the servant king. That's how he overcame. He doesn't assert his power over others with force, but he rules and reigns by the rule of love. Now, if we remember back to the garden, Adam and Eve were asked to rule over the earth by tending to it. That was always God's plan. God's kingdom is a kingdom of sacrificial rule by way of service and love. This would reveal God's own heart as king. And this is the way the kingdom of God works. Jesus' death on on the cross is a huge shock in the story and it is a massive blow to his disciples. The kingdom on earth seems to win. They kill the Messiah And that wasn't supposed to happen. But it's the resurrection that declares that Jesus' death on the cross was a victory, not a defeat. None of the powers, be they spiritual, religious, political, neither sin nor death, could overcome Jesus. The resurrection announces that God has triumphed over his enemies and become king of all things king on earth as he is in heaven. In John 20, verse 16 to 17, it says, Mary, Jesus said, she turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is so interesting. What is the message that Mary is to tell the disciples? Do you know? The message was that Jesus is ascending, that Jesus is King. That is the gospel that Jesus gives her, that is the good news. So, that is my very long introduction to what happens next. (laughs) I hope we're all comfy. (laughs) The Ascension. When the King of heaven and earth takes his rightful place. Let's read about it. Acts 1, verses 6 to 11. So, when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, "'Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel "'and restore the kingdom, our kingdom?' "'He replied, "'The Father alone has the authority "'to set those dates and times, "'and they are not for you to know. "'But you will receive power "'when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, "'and you will be my witnesses, "'telling people about me everywhere, "'in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria "'and to the ends of the earth.'" After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud While they were watching and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Jesus is raised up, in his rightful place, claiming the allegiance of every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. This is Jesus' ascension to his throne. But where did he go? Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his father, the right hand of the, of the majesty of heaven. Sorry, I made the father a bit up. But he did do that too. <laughs> Jesus has been taken up to heaven where the father is. Ascension ends the time of Jesus appearing to his disciples after the resurrection and begins Jesus' session as the father's vice regent. This is what Jesus is doing now as he sits at the Father's right hand in glory until the day of his return. And the disciples understood this. Well, they did after a little bit of time standing and staring into heaven, which I think is a perfectly normal reaction to someone witnessing Jesus' ascension. See, we know they were not actually sad. We know this because in Luke 24, 52, he tells us. This is just after the ascension. It says, so they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. What did the disciples do? They worshipped him immediately. They understood that Jesus has overcome death and to transcends the heaven and earth divide. They worship the one who is exalted. They worship the one who is enthroned. He is worthy of all of our worship and our praise and adoration. And the disciples start to minister in the name of Jesus, their king. Michael F. Byrd says this, The pre-existent son of God was incarnated as a human being. The man, Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus was resurrected, he was still God incarnate, except now he had a glorified human body. When he ascended to heaven, he took that human body to heaven. He did not cease to be human. He did not shed his human shell, like someone taking off a gorilla suit, and resume his pre-incarnate life as a luminous angel being. No, he retained his glorified humanity for the rest of eternity. In other words, there is now a human at the helm of the universe. And what is more, We worship an Aramaic speaking, brown skinned, scarred, and circumcised Jewish man at the Father's right hand. So, when Jesus ascended to heaven, it wasn't that the divine Son of God was being returned back to heaven, having left to be on earth for a while. It was something much more mind boggling than that. It was an ascension of a God-man. It was a coronation, a moment where Jesus takes his rightful place at the right hand of the Father as King of the heaven, God's place, and earth, human's place. Bishop Maximus of Turin says this, The earth rejoices when it sees the Redeemer reigning in the heavens. Heaven is glad because it has not lost its God which it had and has received the manhood which it had not. Can you imagine the rejoicing and the singing in heaven and indeed on earth from the disciples? Jesus has now bridged the divide between heaven and earth and is king over all. What does that mean for us? When we read this question, the disciples ask, just before the ascension, it might shed some light on the matter. In Acts 1, verse 6, they say, Lord... Has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? I've always thought that when the disciples asked that question, the answer was no. But that is a common misconception. The answer is not a no, but a yes, but. Let's read what Jesus says, Acts 1, verse 7. The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does Jesus mean when he tells the disciples that they will now be his witnesses? The word witness here is not just telling people about your new religious experience or telling people that you're now going to heaven. To be a witness of Jesus is to proclaim to people that there is now another king, Jesus. And this is what the disciples actually started to do. Acts 17, 7 to 8. And Jason welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying, There is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. So to be a follower of Jesus is not just about saying a prayer one day, or identifying as a Christian, or trying really hard to live a good life, but it is something much more. Jesus is asking us to do something that interestingly was the thing that caused a lot of controversy and hit the news at King Charles' coronation when there were rumors that he was gonna ask them to do this. As a follower of Jesus, we are to pledge allegiance to the king of kings. Romans ten nine. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To be a follower of Jesus means to walk in Jesus' reign. When you do this, your lives will look different As you order your worship, your hopes, your finances, your ambitions, or all parts of your life around the most important confession of faith, Jesus is Lord and King. This is what it means to pledge allegiance, to kneel at Jesus' feet and proclaim that he is your King. And this heavenly enthronement does more for us followers of Jesus It restores us to the task that was planned for us in the garden, the plan that God had always intended for us. We share in this reign because of our union with Christ. We are united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension. God's people reign both under God's anointed king and with God's anointed king. This is the hope of what is to come and an answer to what we will be doing for all of eternity. We are going to be ruling and reigning with God forever, co-heirs with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4-6. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. We are royal heirs. We are not yet on the throne, but our man Jesus is. And not only that, he is interceding for us as high priest. It is because of this that we can boldly approach the throne of God with our prayers, our praises, our confessions, our thanksgivings, and our requests. Because Jesus has gone ahead of us and entered heaven we can be assured that we are accepted. Through him, we can approach the throne with both confidence and boldness. Jesus has opened the door into the presence of God forever. Instead of ascension being a sort of overlooked add-on to the resurrection, it is the climax of the whole story, the completion of Jesus' work. And the mystery of the kingdom and the now and the not yet is that living in his kingdom power can start now. As we declare Jesus as king of our lives, as we bow the knee to him and allow him to rule and reign in our hearts by his spirit. And we know from Jesus' life and teaching that his kingdom is so different from any other kingdom that has been on earth or that is on earth or that is to come. It is the complete opposite of what people think that it would look like. Where you assert your rule and reign over someone actually means to serve them, even if it's sometimes at your own expense. There is sacrifice in this kingdom rule, where the first are last and the last are first. It is a reorganizing of your value system, and a complete mind and heart transformation. And as the king's people, we will display those values and the works of the kingdom in our lives, and that is how it spreads. The kingdom of God is proclaimed to the world, which we live, wherever we go. And we get to draw people towards Jesus, our king, with love. This is how we live out our redemptive purpose and God's plan for us to be co-workers with Christ and God's representatives here on earth. He has restored to us our vocation and not only that, he has amplified it. We are his body here on earth tending to his creation with loving sacrifice just like we were made to do. And he entrusts us to carry out his kingdom mission to the whole world. Okay. We're going to do some thinking about what we just talked about this morning and some responding to Jesus. So I'm going to ask Ryan just to come up. And Joanna. Can we all just stand? I'm just going to give us some time. And I'm just going to start playing. And as we wait, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. So just close your eyes, it might make it easier. Holy Spirit, come. This is a moment for you as you picture Jesus where he is now as King of the Universe. To pledge allegiance to him. To bring your whole life before him. And ask him what areas need to come under his kingship. If you ask him, he will tell you.
0: Nicky, share with us this morning is at the heart of the gospel. Romans 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the King, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Jesus the Christ, our Lord, our King. This is the heart of the good news. That we get to come under the kingship of the one who gave his life for us, served us, died for our sin, was risen again to give us life. Then Revelation we get this glimpse of all of creation around the throne. And it says this. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human, the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. It's a lot of strange-looking creatures And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and inside, day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And that is the future vision that we will come before the throne of Jesus and we will lay our crowns before him and we will worship him. And we're invited to do that now. So I just want to ask, if you want to come and lay down the crown of your life, of your own authority over your own life and just confess once again, Jesus, you are my king.